Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr Maddie Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death, brought to you by Goalout. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Neve McCulloch, who I've worked with many times. She's the person you go to when you want to know where the bodies are buried. Welcome, Neve. How are you? Great. Thanks very much for having me, Mary and Paul. This is great all together. Thank you. And it's nice to meet you, Neve. Neve, I, I, I know you in your capacity as a, a forensic archaeologist, but you obviously didn't start out there. You started off um, in archaeology. And yes. for people, even like myself, who don't really understand the difference between archaeology and anthropology even, can you explain how you came into archaeology and what it was that you thought that... Um, Hmm, this sounds interesting. And then what made you think about changing your course once you were in there? In school, my uh, favourite subjects were biology and art. And, you know, they were things that I don't know how you can marry those. But um, so I was really, you know, didn't know what to do next. And um, art college wasn't really an option because you had to leave Cork and I had to stay in Cork and all this kind of stuff. So I ended up doing an arts degree. And uh, within arts, my absolute favourite subject became archaeology. And very quickly, you know, I really just learned to love this notion of stepping back into the past and, you know, really having the the tools in archaeology to be able to do that, you know, quite scientifically, um, step back into those moments uh, where people last lived in a place or last died in a place, you know, ranging right back from, you know, right down through to prehistory, coming right up through to the Viking Age in Ireland and, you know, coming right on up into the, the modern period. Um, so this just absolutely fascinated me that, that you could do this, you know, but it was, you know, this part of it was quite interesting, but the interpretation side of archaeology never sat right with me. That, um, you know, I used to get really offended when people would call uh, prehistoric people primitive because I was like, you don't know that. You've absolutely no way of knowing that, you know. So the interpretation side of it, you know, was something that just never sat right with me. And then I remember uh, in second year, one of our lecturers went to, and I'd say it was when you were there, Barry, they went out to um, uh, the former Yugoslavia and spent two weeks with a colleague of theirs, um, you know, learning what they what they were doing there, what the forensic archaeology and the anthropology teams were doing there, recovering remains from the genocide there. So um, he came back and gave us a lecture about this. And I remember it just blew my mind. I was like, this is it. This, this makes complete sense to me. You know, having this skill that I can actually apply to modern people, to, you know, being of use, you know, to modern society, to people who are alive now, to providing some you know, solace or some, some you know, to, to families of victims who are alive now. And it just, it, it made so much sense to me. So it was a, an epiphany, if you like. <laughs> so I knew then that I, I had to pursue, to pursue this, but you had to go to the UK. To the, you couldn't study it in Ireland. You, st- you still can't really, but um, the only place that you could, uh, you know, specialise was in the UK. But I, at, that, at that time, you know, I had, I still was with my, my undergrad and I knew that, I knew that much that you needed to be an expert 
in something to be a forensic anything. So um, I mm-hmm. went and worked in the field of archaeology itself in Ireland at the time. There was quite um, a lot of work due to the amount of development that was going on. So archaeologists were quite gainfully employed um, pre all this development work that was going on. Um, so I spent six years digging in the field and eventually said, it's now or never. I have no mortgage. I have no children. So, you know, it's, it's time. <laughs> so I went to the University of Bradford in 2007 and uh, 2006 and spent 12 months there learning the craft of um, forensic archaeology and crime scene investigation. Um, and that started my, my journey into uh, forensic archaeology in earnest, really. And, and how long was that course? Um, it was a 12 month course. And, and after that, what, what, how long did it take you to move in another step? This is the other side of it. I, when I when I thought about specialising, I remember being told um, there was no way I would ever work in Ireland. That that was, you know, it just wasn't, there was no work in Ireland for this kind of thing. And, you know, there, there was n- not even very much knowledge about this as a specialism. So, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to accept that you're going to have to go abroad and work abroad, which I was more than happy to do. Um, and, but when I, so when I finished my master's, the topic that I had done for my master's was looking at missing persons in Ireland and similar to the, the PhD topic, but that um, looking at missing persons and how to improve the search for missing persons. But I did this through uh, media sources. So it was just a notional idea that this is something if you had real data, you could do this in a more effective way. And part of that was looking at uh, cases for the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims Remains, the ICLVR. So when I um, uh, finished I found out that my supervisors had just been employed uh, by the ICLVR to begin uh, uh, assisting search for uh, the commission at that time in 2006. So um, they very graciously offered me some um, uh, fieldwork experience. And I think because I was a practicing you know, professional archaeologist already, that was something that, you know, that was when I could really see the benefit of it. You know, I had dealt with machine drivers, I had dealt with you know, large sites and ground movement and, you know, recording. And I had, you know, I had experience in all this, so they could, I suppose they could count on me in some way for that, you know, for that side of things. So they asked me, would I come and do uh, two weeks in the summer uh, to help them with some site work that they had going on? And that started a story that is is still, you know, 14 years later. How many, 14 years later, I'm still... (laughs) still have um, uh, association with the ICLVR. So, yeah, that started my fieldwork experience. So um, I spent, you know, quite a a lot of time. We did quite an intense period of work uh, with them from 2007 to about 2012 uh, when we were actively pursuing quite a lot of um, different searches, which is when I met uh, Mary. Yeah, because until I came to Ireland, I I really had no notion of... Either for well, I knew about forensic anthropology because I'd worked with with um, Dame Sue Black uh, when I was in, in in Glasgow. But forensic archaeology was again something that I didn't know anything about, and it was only on a couple of occasions I was called down to digs where they'd found some human remains, and the coroner had asked me to come down. More, more as a courtesy call, just to go down and say, "Yeah, they look pretty old." I go, yeah. "I have no idea at all." They're like, they look pretty brown and broken up. And if you're telling me that this is ancient, I, 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 I'm happy with that. Um, and, it, and I think, to be fair, and Paul, you probably know this as well, is that doctors sometimes um, 
are a bit reticent at using other professionals um, out with medicine. And I know even when I came over to, to Ireland, um, Jack Harbison, um, when, I, when I mentioned using a forensic anthropologist in one of the first cases I was involved in, he went, oh, no, 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 no. mumbo-jumbo, mumbo-jumbo. Um, we could just use, we've got a, a professor of anatomy in Trinity that I use every time. And I thought, yeah, well... That's not, yeah, that's fine. She'll tell me what bones and all the rest of it. But these people specialise in the kind of work that we do. They are forensic anthropologists. They're not just anatomists. And then, so then um, you were the first real, well, when I'd gone to Bosnia, I'd been working with some of the forensic and archaeologists and anthropologists. And they were all as mad as hatters. And I, you know, they were but marvellous. And what they were doing was extraordinary out there. But I'd never really worked too closely with the archaeologists until I got, you know, I got involved with the commission of the location of the victim's remains and then uh, met up with yourself. And I used to shake my head when I saw you and think, how does that poor woman go out there day after day and... Uh, and without anything at the end of the day to yeah, you know to yeah. show for it, and I just thought, good lord, I don't know if I could do that, but you did, yeah. and you you are still doing it. What what motivated you to keep going in with that with, with that in that particular? Well, I mean investigation? that's that's an absolutely fantastic observation because it is so so true, especially with those commission cases. You know, we would be uh, months and in some cases years on a particular site. And, um, you know, even when you're practicing traditional archaeology, you, you find things on a daily basis that you have to record and photograph. But when you're searching, excavating these bogs, there is literally nothing, nothing. You're not coming across even, you know, some discarded rubbish or you're coming across nothing. So, you know, you'd often, you know, just wonder yourself, you know, how, how is this going to end? Um, but there was, I mean, I suppose there was a lot of motivating factors because you're constant, you know, for, you know, from the outset, you're constantly um, adjusting and reassessing the search strategy and double checking uh, and working with obviously the investigators and double checking that the information and what you're doing and you know, you're constantly reassessing and, you know, you have goals of your priority area and then your secondary priority area. So these things are keeping you going. Um, but I don't think anybody, I mean, the commission itself, you know, certainly nobody, you know, in, in Northern Ireland office or in the Department of Justice would have envisaged that these searches would have gone on for so long. But I think, you know, they were successful in so many cases that it, it proved the point, perhaps, that nobody wanted to be true, that it takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of commitment to actually rule these areas in or out as potential relevant. You know, there has to be a massive commitment to search these areas completely because at the end of the day you want to be able to say even in the areas that you have searched can you categorically say there is nobody there you're not going to find nobody you know, nothing's going to turn up in in a couple of years time there is nobody there um but also we had massive um involvement from the families there was quite a few cases where the families would visit the site regularly and there was one case in particular where they would visit every wednesday at lunchtime you know for for nearly, I mean, it was certainly over nine months. Um, and they would, you know, they like you could see the pain that it was causing them even so many years on. And I mean, you know, as you know, Mary, the work you do is always for the victim anyway, but um, certainly being able to, to witness the effect that um, 
even you being there and searching and committing to searching so completely um, and so thoroughly was, you know, was having a massive impact on um, on people's lives. Yeah, I imagine that would spur you on and the, the fact that you you knew that somebody was going to turn up, you would want to say, well, maybe this week we will have something for them. Uh, but it's it's incredible. I mean, as I say, I think we were all very naive in the beginning when the commission was set up that we thought it was all going to be done and dusted within, you know, a few months, if not a year. And I don't think anybody envisaged that it would be going on for so long. But I think, you know, time, time has told us that, um, you know, Perhaps we should have realised that this was going to be a long process. But for the families, I think that must have been hard. I don't know if you recall the first time, um, you know, the, the very first searches that happened were May 99 and um, the undertakers were there on site when the digging started. You know, they were sitting there with their hearses ready to go. That was how firm the belief was that this would be a... Uh, there were six searches that started simultaneously with um, uh, people waiting literally in the wings um, for remains to be recovered. So you're right, like people were, you know, I suppose naive, but also, you know, it probably shows the, the real hope that people had that this would be something that would be resolved quickly for people as well, you know. Well, talk us through when you get a call from the Gardaí saying that they're, they've got some information that they suspect that there is a body or remains or something buried in a particular site. How how do you actually go about it? How do you plan it all? I mean, I've seen you in action and I have no idea what you're doing half the time, all these machines and people that come in. And I, you know, it's like anything that's outside of forensic pathology. I just think, good Lord, that's just, you know, another sphere. I have no idea about it, but you're all doing a great job. So what do you do? I mean, and what do you need? What information do you need from them? And how do you go about you know, looking at the the landscape, if you like. Okay. Well, I suppose the, you know, I could I could see why it looks quite chaotic. You know, with bouts of mud everywhere and that. But it, I suppose the, the the big thing to keep in mind with the approach is that it's systematic. It may not look it, but it is absolutely systematic. So, right from the beginning of when you you first get a call. Um, it's usually at the point of which the um, investigators suspect an area or they suspect an individual who is associated with a particular area. So basically, they'll have a case of a missing person and they'll also have a landscape that they believe the missing person is potentially um, disposed of in. So this could be on the surface or it can be buried. Um, and the landscapes can be, you know, range from a back, somebody's back garden, you know, in, in a residential area to the entire side of a mountain so the you know really the most kind of crucial step to developing the strategy of how you're going to deal with this scenario is um the background work of you know getting as much information as you can having the opportunity to um you know question investigators about very specific nuances of any information that they might have um and the uh, uh desktop review so this is where you gather all of the historic aerial photography so the the best thing that you can get is um, photographs of the the landscape at the time that the the person went missing I remember one particular case we had an aerial photograph that was taken six weeks after the person went missing and that I mean that's just an incredible you know tool to have that can assist you put all of these uh, 
pieces of information together, you know, what the landscape looked like in the past, what the landscape looked like at the time the person went missing and what the landscape looks like now so that you can determine, you know, that you know that when you're walking out into a particular area, it didn't look anything like that when somebody was making a decision about where to bury somebody or where to dispose of a body. So all of these things feed into the strategy that you um, that you employ and every site is so, so different. But that first stage is very crucial um, to determining where where in that landscape your priority areas are going to be. So where the most likely, potentially most likely locations that um, you're going to look for a clandestine or a hidden grave. Um, and from that point, then you can assess what techniques are going to be useful to, to narrow down your priority areas. So is it going to be useful to use geophysics, uh, ground penetrating radar, magnetometry, will that assist in this particular case, depending on what the landscape is like, um, cadaver dogs, um, they're a fantastic tool for um, eliminating the surface of a site, well, to contr- contribute to eliminating the surface of a site. Um, the Garda search teams, the divisional search teams, are, are just such a fantastic um, uh, tool to use on site. You know, this is you know, 20, 30, 40 pairs of eyes that you have that can help to uh, scan the surface of the site, looking for scavenged remains, looking for um, evidence that there's a hole been dug in a particular place. Um, at a certain point so that's part of the process as well is um, briefing the search team about what to expect when looking for um, um, a clandestine grave you know what differences in growth or soil that they might keep an eye out for and so this all feeds into the strategy that you'll then employ on site um, in uh, isolating anomalies or priority areas that you can then subject to this more full-on excavation which is what you see uh, with the machines and Again, this is done quite systematically. Um, and then once you um, encounter something that is suspicious, uh, switching into manual mode and recovering or excavating those anomalies to determine if indeed you have a clandestine grave and we do all this excavation then by hand. Yeah, and that's when the, as I suppose, the hard bit comes for you. Um, once the diggers are out of the way and, and uh, you're having to sift through the soil and... Yeah, that, that's when I run out of patience. And I always have to, whenever I go and I've been invited along to to witness you in action when, they're, when we're waiting to get to the body. And my inclination is to throw you out the way and get a big spade and just go, right, let's get it out now. And then I think, no, 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 keep your hands in your pockets and keep your mouth shut and let her get on with it. She knows what she's doing. We'll get there eventually. And we'll, I'm, and you always do. And you <laughs> you always come up trumps. <laughs> That's such a common reaction, you know, because it's like you're taking forever. You know, what are you doing? How could this be? I can see there's a body there. Why won't you just, you know, trying to convince people you need to just wait and let the process happen? Because as I say, you can get, you can gather tool mark evidence, you can gather um, trace evidence, and you can find like hair, like one strand of big long ha- strand of hair within the fill of the grave, you know, cigarette butts. You know, there's so much evidence that can be gleaned from that grave itself that to be able to do it to be able to excavate it um slowly <laughs> um yet swiftly um and to gather as much of that information as as is there because they're all missed opportunities if you just plow on through it literally and just go straight for uh, uh, the remains themselves so often the best time for me is once the remains have been handed over <laughs> to Mary and I'm left alone <laughs> with the grave cut <laughs> and the amount of information that I can gather from that when, you know, when that pressure is gone is um, 
it, you know, it's just it, it continues to, to amaze me every time. So so have I got this bit right? You, the body is discovered and, and eventually you clear the early to, to the point where you feel that the body can safely be handed to Mary. But then you continue working. What, you, what, what will, I suppose, usually the way that it will come about that you have discovered um, human remains, that you've discovered the clandestine grave that you're looking for, is you might encounter perhaps the top of a shoe or maybe, um, you know, part of a bone or you might even be uh, uh, be able to see the, the cut of the grave. So the staining on the ground where the, the, the grave has actually been created. Um, and once, you know, that we can't call Mary until we know that there's something there. Um, is there are there human remains present or not? So we have to do a half section of the grave. So this is a, a, a quick way of trying to determine what's in the grave without doing this full excavation to start off with. So once you can confirm, yes, there are human remains here, I need to excavate the fill of the grave. So this is all the loose soil that's in the grave with the, the, the victim. So I need to excavate all of this loose soil and expose the remains and have everybody do the things that they need to do at that point, recover the remains, and then I can continue to excavate and record the grave and um, the fill that's come out of the grave, the, the cut marks that might be within the grave. Um, so that's, yeah, absolutely. I'll spend another probably half a day uh, doing that once the remains have been uh, recovered. You can get entomological evidence, you know, um, um, pupae and larvae. From the group, there's there's so much that you can you can gather from these scenarios. And in all weather conditions, Neve. Oh God, yeah, oh. that's the. That's the <laughs> oh my! I, I think I've permanently damaged my feet from years of standing on bogs. You know, I used to love. I used to actually have hobbies where I'd go out and enjoy and um, water sports and you know putting on a wetsuit and jumping into the sea. And now I can't bear to be cold if I don't have to be. <laughs> So it has definitely had a, a, an adverse impact on my tolerance of cold. But yeah, it's, it's definitely the weather. Weather is very challenging, um, psychologically challenging, <laughs> mentally challenging. Yes, it's not really a glamorous profession, is it really? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Head to toe in mud. Like, and, and you know you've had a good day when you're actually you know, coated in a layer of mud because it means you've been down on the ground doing something. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the enthusiasm that you have for it now, Neve. Really and truly, it's, it's coming across so strong. You know, you absolutely love the work you do. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do. I probably do because, like, as I said before, it's, you know, I, I get to step into a time machine every time I go to work. You know, I mean, that's just, to me, that's incredible. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the hardest part of it is those long jobs, you know, trying to keep up that commitment and enthusiasm for those long jobs. But it's completely outweighed by the reason why you're doing it, you know. And um, as I, I, I convinced a colleague, an archaeological colleague of mine to come join the uh, the forensic dark side. And he said, you've ruined archaeology for me because there's nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing can compare to having this impact on living people. You know, when you recover uh, remains of somebody who's been missing for so long and, um, you know, that it's like that doesn't compare to finding a ring for it or a ditch, you know, for some people, maybe others it does. But, you know, he was like, you ruined archaeology for me. So horses for courses. I think that's what it is. 
Because I remember when I was in Glasgow that um, <clears throat> the archaeology department invited me along to one of their digs, um, which was close to the university. And um, they were they were so excited in showing me this, what I thought was a broken old wall. And beside it were piled up skulls and bits of, and they were going, yeah, we've got these, yeah, the bodies there, they'll have to get moved. But look at this and look at the architect. And I was going... Bloody hell. I was going, but look at that skull's got a big hole in it. This one's, you know, I was more interested in that. And I couldn't understand this enthusiasm for uh, buildings and bits of artefacts. I just thought, well, you know, that's not my bag. Yeah. Each to his own. The problem, though, is with when I find somebody like you, (laughs) as you know, (laughs) you never tell me that you've got some kind of something that that can help me in what I'm doing. And I do remember getting you involved in something that perhaps you've been cursing me ever since. But I remember when there was um, Judge Yvonne Murphy approached me because she was getting involved with the mother and baby homes. And of course, as soon as it's anything that involves death, they immediately go, oh, we'll go to the state pathologist because that's what they do. And I keep on saying, well, yeah, I do. Yes, I'm a forensic pathologist, but I don't do excavations. I'm not an anthropologist. You know, there are other experts. And I said, and I know the very expert you need. (laughs) And I said, and here's her name. Goodbye. (laughs) If she ever finds a body, let me know. But you're in good hands. And I walked away and, and, and left you, God love you, to get on with it. But that was, I suppose that was the start of this investigation into the mother and baby homes and into the the tomb babies in particular. Um, and that, again, was another huge excavation that you took on board. Uh, it was incredible, incredible the work that you put into it. Again, before you got any results. And then when you got the results, then it, it sort of just then exploded mm, in a way. Yeah, no, I remember um, being on the news, you know, I suppose, what was it, maybe 2014, um, when that first, you know, made the, the, the news very dramatically, uh, when Catherine Corliss came forward with the evidence that she had. And I was working as a forensic archaeologist for um, an, a UK company uh, at the time. Um, and I remember looking at it and going, gosh, it's only a matter of time now before you hear that they've engaged some forensic archaeologist and you know and you know it, I never heard anymore and then one day one morning very innocently when I was just coming up to do my research yeah uh, <laughs> you threw me from the firing pan into the fire but um it was amazing like it was very interesting obviously the evidence that they had and you know this I suppose it really do you know what it really brought forward for me Myself and forensic archaeologists are probably are not very good at probably assume a lot of people know the value in what we can offer, you know. And I remember walking into that room and being, you know, told about this evidence, and I was like, "Of course, the logical next step is blah 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 blah," but that's not <laughs> logical for for probably no most people, you know. So, um, so yeah, so so as I mentioned with this desktop review where you look at the, all the information that you have and then move on to what other uh, search methods, you know, what other technology you can bring before you. So it's all about moving from the least invasive methods to the m- more invasive, because once you start excavating, you can't go back. There, you know, excavation is by its nature destruction. So you have to be um, very sure about what you're doing and very uh, thorough and systematic when you do get to that point of excavation. So, so that was exactly what 
um, I did with the, the, the Mother and Baby Home Commission was start at the beginning with um, the information they had um, and, you know, put, you know, applied some technology through the uh, geophysics and a little bit more research into archives and mapping to try and establish exactly where um, we should begin these um, test excavations. Basically, at that point, which is it's very common knowledge now, but at that point, the question still was, are there human remains here? That was still the very first question. And so the site had to be investigated in such a way that if you did find human remains, you wouldn't interfere with any investigation that would proceed from that point. So it had to be all done completely under forensic control uh, with that strategy uh, always running through it and so that an investigation could pursue uh, depending on what we found there. So that was an incredibly interesting job, obviously, to work on. And the findings obviously were um, were quite staggering. Um, but we had, uh, there was a team there as well, you know, of, of uh, three archaeologists and myself and a machine driver. So, um, you know, there was, I mean, each and every one of those people played a, such a crucial role in, in, that, in that work, you know. Uh, and Dave, what exactly did you find? Um, so the, uh, the the questions were: um, Are there human remains at this location? Uh, what's their relationship to any um, sewage tank that may be on site? Uh, what uh, what's the date range of these remains? You know, do they relate to the time of the operation of the mother and baby home? And also, um, is there anything we can, if we do find remains, what can we tell about them? You know, can we tell anything about their ages? There any demographic information? So we we found human remains. And we found them in um, a chambered structure that was built within a sewage tank. And the remains were all of um, infants and neonates. So there was, um, I think the oldest, the majority of uh, remains were from that that neonate phase. Um, And then I think the, the oldest that we had was from that age bracket of four to six years old. But we didn't actually excavate any of of the remains we simply observed them from the surface because they were in uh, they are in these um chambers that are two and a half meters below the ground surface and how did you feel emotionally when 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 you found it i was i was disappointed that it was true that this you know this kind of incredible piece of um evidence that uh, catherine corliss had discovered or you know that she had unearthed that the conclu- that her conclusions that now we have had evidence that it was true I was disappointed that infants and babies and children in our society had been treated that way. Um, that was the, the, the kind of prevailing thing really was disappointment that it was, that it was in fact true and that now we had to, to live with this and deal with this. Um, I was disappointed for, for our, our society and for our history and for our past really. But I don't think that um, was completely unusual in those times though um and i think when we look at things nowadays and we look at them through our eyes of what we think is right and what we think is wrong and what we think should be done what's the right thing to do we now have a very different mm-hmm. idea of what was right or wrong but i remember even coming from glasgow we had the old what they called the fever hospitals and they really did have what you call mass graves. I mean, there was no option to them. They had this, you know, sort of people coming in and dying from these horrendously infectious diseases, which 
perhaps they didn't have as much information about that even as as we have now and they weren't sure what we should do with them and collectively you just you know they they all went into the the same mass grave and so it was a solution sometimes to a a, a problem that nowadays we would think very differently about um and you know I, I, so i'm ambivalent about it when you know when i look at it i think well really if I, at that time did that seem to be the right thing to do? Now, that's the question that people have to ask of those people. But as I say, it comes from a background where some things were accepted more easily and more readily than, than others. I think I think um, you're right, absolutely, to a point where um, this, you know, there was you know, uh, significant amounts of children dying. This creates a very logist. This is a logistical issue for um, an institution yeah. of that time. Um, but I think the, the you know the the problem with this very specific scenario is the association with the sewage tank. You know, it's the context in this particular yeah. scenario that is um, you know is, is obviously massively problematic. You know, well, that's for people other than ourselves to discuss and decide on. <laughs> Children's burial grounds um, are not uncommon in Ireland. They're dotted all around the landscape um, in Ireland, um, in in very you know sometimes in in disused churchyards or alongside um, you know just outside the boundaries of uh, current uh, graveyards. And these are referred to as Kalini um, or Kalines, and they were um, basically unregistered um, burial grounds for uh, children who had died maybe stillbirths or who had died in infancy, children who had died um, before they were um, baptised uh, by the church. So they were considered, and, and also these claims would have contained um, suicide victims or perhaps in some cases you have um, um, adult uh, remains who they who would have, you know, maybe if it's in a seaside location, if there was people who had washed up in a shipwreck and they didn't know what religion those uh, adults were, they would have also been uh, buried in these means. So they were, you know, respected locations, but they were outside of um, a, a church, outside of the consecrated church ground. So this was um, a practice in Ireland, and you know, it still even occurs in, in in some locations where children who have or who are not accepted into the formal graveyard of the parish need to be buried somewhere, and this is where tombs uh, come from. In archaeology, we, we you know you learn about them from you know from from when you begin your training because we have you know the series of mapping the Ordnance Survey Ireland mapping that we have uh, which documented the country in. You know, in extreme detail in the 1800s, and you see, um, this is where we get a lot of information about archaeology, archaeological sites. So it's where our sites and monuments record comes from in Ireland. That these maps record all the archaeological features in the landscape, but they also record the location of these uh, Kalinis where they were encountered. So we, you know, you do come across them on on mapping. That's interesting because the only one I know of is the, the Angels Plot in Glasnevin. I knew about that, and I knew at one point there was some controversy over that as well, and there was some move to um, try and identify some of the remains in in the plot. But um, I think there was there was people who were for it, people who were against it, and it would be very difficult in that instance, I know, to access some of the bodies. 
without disturbing others of the families who didn't want any disturbance. And I think that comes down to like the tomb babies is one of the whole ideas behind any excavation is to identify remains. And we, we had that in, in Bosnia um, where you had mass graves and of course you, you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of, of unidentified bodies. And now I was going down, that, that started in the, the 1990s and the identification is still ongoing. You know, trying to do DNA analysis on these bodies is taken, well, how's my maths? It's taken about 30 years to do the DNA on, on you know, the pro- DNA profiles and try to identify these people. And I think people think that, well, DNA, it's quite a simple thing. All you do is take a little bit of tissue, you run it through a lab, hey, presto, a little ticker tape comes out and it says, oh, that's John Smith. It's not that simple, and particularly when you've got, um, as we, as we had in in Bosnia, we had sometimes we had a primary grave site where the bodies were just literally piled one on top of the other, but you could actually delineate each different body, so you could say that's one uh, set of human remains, that's another, and then we had the secondary graves where the bodies were commingled, and. My recollection of the tomb is that you've got co-mingling. When you've got co-mingling, you don't know what relates to what body. And it means that instead of doing a DNA sample from one bone from one body, you're having to do DNA samples from everything. And it's an enormous task, an enormous... Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in Bosnia, even now, uh, you know, they're still under, Mm -hmm. still doing and, and DNA analysis there. Yeah. And even now, you know, when they if they have just found one element of somebody and they have identified it, you know, say if they have just found an arm of somebody, the family have a choice whether to bury that arm or wait until more investigation. You know, pe- the people who are the most successful at this in the world still face this very real fact of what you do with the remains that are outstanding or the remains that you can't identify or, you know, the this is a problem that I think you have to acknowledge before you move forward with any any work that you do in tune, that it's not just those that you can identify who um, need to be um, uh, treated with respect and dignity and, and reburied. You, 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 know, you must also, uh, just because you can't identify somebody doesn't mean exactly. that they don't, you know, shouldn't get the same treatment. I know, um, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, very massive, problem. massive problem, yeah. yeah. I just don't think that people realise the enormity of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're saying about the commingling, especially with tomb, you have, you know, these are all infants, you know, and, mm. you know, and it has more bones than a um, full-grown adult. So, you know, it's, it's all of the really, it's not impossible, but it's all of the very mm. challenging things about yeah. a case all put into, into one scenario. Mm. The other things that's quite unique to Ireland, which I found again when I came over here, I mean, I spent my whole, I think my first five years in Ireland going, it's an Irish thing, it's an Irish thing, because it was just completely alien to me, some of the things that were going on here. But another thing was that we had these women who had gone missing in the 1990s and that although I, as I say, I've been a forensic pathologist for many years before I came to Ireland, and we, we would get odd human remains being brought in, odd bones being brought in. It's a constant feature in Ireland, is this constant striving to try and find these missing people. And 
One of the things that, um, again, we became closely linked was that you had decided to do your PhD thesis on looking at whether or not forensic archaeology could help in identifying missing people or where the, these missing people could be and if these people were alive or whether they were dead, where they would eventually turn up. Because when, at what point do you accept that the missing person is more than missing. It's always, it must be, a, you know, it's not, again, it's not something that I have to decide. I only, dis, I'm only involved once they found a body. But from the investigator's point of view, it's that mindset change because it's a very different investigation, a missing person from looking for buried remains or disposed remains. But you decided to tackle this and came to to the Office of the State Pathologist and asked if you could go through all the back reports, which thankfully Jack Harbison had kept everything. And to be fair, it was fantastic because it, it was historical records because he kept all the newspaper clippings, he kept everything. So it wasn't just a, a bare report of this man died and he died because he had been hit on the head with an iron bar. It was um, the background story. It was the all of the stories about the body being found, the interviews with the families. And, you know, it, it's a huge historical record. I don't think anybody really appreciates how much was in it. And I don't think I even appreciated how much was in it until you started digging through it. Uh, and literally, you know, you had to, it was like going back to being an archaeologist, you literally had just to get in there, roll up your sleeves and just open up these boxes and just see what was inside. What were you trying to achieve and what did you achieve with all of that? I suppose as I, as I mentioned way back when I started this kind of forensic archaeology and search side of things, you know, technology is one of the stages that you can apply to a search. So looking at various geophysical methods or LIDAR, you know, these kind of non-invasive methods. So I've been an archaeologist for 20 years, a forensic archaeologist for 14 years, and I have found over that time there's been very little um, progression of these technologies that can be applied in forensic scenarios or scenarios where you're looking for a single individual grave. So this is a very discreet thing to look for in a landscape as opposed to maybe even a mass grave or a buried structure. You know, these things are more perhaps more readily findable as opposed to a discrete single individual grave. So the technology has never really come on enough for me. I probably naively believe that nothing is really lost. We just haven't found it yet. You know, we haven't figured out how to find it, basically. So, uh, you know, even if, if remains have de decomposed massively, you can still find evidence that they were there at some point. So, you know, nothing has ever gone entirely. So um, I started looking into this issue of uh, what were people, what have people been doing with victims that they want to dispose of or hide? What is, what's their behaviour? So the idea was that um, you would use data from previous cases to try and establish a decision support system for cases in the future that might have similarities to a case you're working on. For example, you know, a, 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 the, the gender of the victim or the sex of the victim, you know, is it a domestic, suspected domestic crime? Is it a suspected paramilitary um, disposal? You know, so these kind of features that you could look at the data and see what kind of landscapes or what kind of distances have been used before. So when you have a report of a missing person who you believe has come to harm, you know, this could be some a tool that you would look into um, to try and find similarities with other cases that might assist you in those first initial steps with the decisions that you're making. Um, so effectively creating a decision support system. And the reason for going back into right back as far as I could was because 
as you know, cold cases are constantly being reviewed. And, you know, the transport that was available in 1974 varies very differently to the bus route that somebody took, you know, a victim on, you know, in, in 2004. You know, so the, yeah. the idea was that, you know, it can't be specific to a time or a landscape. I think it needs to cover everything so that um, to be the most effective tool that it, it can be. So that was the reason for delving right back into the past. And also, like, just what an incredible archive, you know, you have that exists there. You, know, you spoke about the tomb situation and a lot of those very early cases. And I remember you saying this to me that, um, uh, you know, in, when I was looking in the 70s, there was quite a lot of cases of newborn babies who had, you know, um, had you know perhaps died at birth whose remains had been discarded and the pathologist had been called out to see if these were suspicious deaths. And I remember saying to you, there's quite a lot of these cases, and you said, yeah, they're all through the archive, you know, more so in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and perhaps less so in the 2000s, but they're potted all the way through. Yeah, I basically did a a complete, uh, opened every single case file um, in the archive to determine, firstly, if it was a suspicious death or a homicide. And secondly, if there had been any element of concealment to the, the homicide, so if the remains had been buried or disposed of after the act of the, the murder. So I looked at over 5,000 case files twice <laughs> and uh, found there were, uh, from that collection from 1974 to 2014, there were 178 cases where the victim had been disposed of. So this is what the, the phrase that um, I started to use was disposal homicides, where there had been this act of disposal and so 178 cases that we could tell that a victim had been disposed of and in research and missing persons we know that from UK statistics they've done you know fantastic research over there but we know from the UK statistics that there's you know approximately 1.2% of all people who are reported missing have come to harm and a certain percentage of those have come to harm at the um you know through a third party so we know that there's this element of missing missing is what they've become known as you know the unknown missing where you can't quite say that they um have been murdered but that's the you know most logical explanation so um the idea is that you can delve into this database and that it's something that it can be updated and maintained um to assist with these searches and you asked what I what I learned and I learned that there's absolutely patterns you know there's very specific patterns around um the sex of the victim so male or female and there's the behaviors are very very different around um you know the distances that are traveled um even the distances from the victim's house how far they are from their house how far they are from the offender's house um you know it's all the figures are really quite high. You know, you're looking at 75, 80%, 88% of feedback of, you know, for instance, um, I found that 75% of victims are found within 30 kilometres of uh, their own home and of the offender's home. So, you know, that might sound like a humongous radius, but it's it's um, an early on uh, decision that can assist. And then you've got very specific landscape uh, features, like we know that a female victims are not disposed of the cases that I looked at female victims are not disposed of in that immediate area on a road side they're carried uh, off the road but no further than 100 meters in over 80 percent of cases you know so there's really there are patterns emerging and that would absolutely be of assistance but the problem with um 
the application of the specific work that I did was that it was uh, the coordinates were only available for cases where an offender had been found guilty. So you need to include all of the cases um, in order to make these you know, more effective and to actually make this a tool that could be um, that could be used uh, quite effectively. So there's, you know, it is it, it, the hard work <laughs> paid off and um, you, you've taken a, a gamble on me, absolutely um, paid off uh, to the, I mean, that resource is just incredible. Um, the archive that you have there. And have you looked at, since you finished your, your thesis, have you looked at any cases that have come up and analysed the results to see if they fit within the parameters that you have found? Yeah. No, I, I was working on a case only very recently where um, the remains were found within the parameters of, of what I had found. Um, now, there was very specific information that led to that location to be searched in the first mm. place. But it's still, you know, it, it fit with what I had been finding. So as I, I think it's um, really an untapped resource. Um, you know, it's information that already exists in the system. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be found. Like all of the all of this information already exists. It just needs to be um, pulled together. I say that like it's it could be done in a heartbeat, but it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all there. But see, if I were you um, uh, and you're lucky that I'm not working there anymore because yeah. I would be pulling you in and saying right Neve, since you finished your, your thesis look at the deaths that have occurred in the last sort of three four years and yeah. pick out the ones where the body was disposed of and then yeah. so do a retrospective look at that and see apply your knowledge to those cases and see if that would have you know you would have had the same outcome Absolutely. And, you know, my the, the data I collected just went up to 2014. So I have a, a, mm-hmm. a like what I'd love to do would be to take from 2014 to you know, 2020 or 2021 and uh, find those cases and uh, mm-hmm. apply them back into the model and see, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it would be fantastic. No, I think that's what you have to do. I don't think it's what you'd like to do. It's what you have to do. You have to do. Yeah, I mean, I like, you know me. I absolutely agree with you. I think. Because, I mean, it's it's such a um, you know, it, it's a tool, a really quite an effective tool that is is there for the taking. It's there for the uh, for the using. Um, but you know, I I actually spoke to um, um, some of the uh, guard investigators who would specialize in this kind of whole case review and. Um, I was saying to them, oh, you know, this database, you know, wouldn't you, like, you have all this information, you know, keep it going. And they were just like, you know, that's not the reality. Like, we can't do that kind of stuff. We're far too busy. And that's something in Ireland, I think mm-hmm. we really are let down by um, research here. You know, there's there's yes. not um, enough support for this kind of criminological research. You know, I mean, absolutely, the guards shouldn't be doing this. You know, they're, they have a job mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. So much, you know between the university system and, and researchers that could be um, really quite effectively, um, you know, bump up any, uh, you know, tools that they that would be of use to them, you know. So we need to get a little bit better at that, I think. In but I think there's, there is a will. And I think, as you say, the problem is that people in the forensic business, are, we are all busy. Um, but that's why we used to bring in students all the time, because you would give a student a project that's something that I wouldn't have time to, to go and research and go through all the books and do everything but something like that a project like that um if you 
I'm sorry to keep making work for you, Neve. <laughs> Even I don't work there anymore and I'm still making work for you. But it'd be nice for you to, you know, maybe to go back to the, the office and say, look, some of the students are always looking for projects for students and just say if they could look these out and then you could give them, you know, a set of criteria and, and say, just apply that and see what, what you get. And then you could you could review it <laughs> just to make sure they're doing it right. But that would be, I think that would be absolutely fascinating. And I think then that would produce, you know, propel your thesis yeah. into sort of the next stage where people, it becomes acceptable and it becomes then that the norm is to come to you in the very, very early stages and include you in all the discussions about the decisions they make. Because as you say, they're busy, you know, the lack of manpower, lack of, you know, funds as well. So if they can concentrate in a smaller area, that would make much more sense than having, you know, sort of a huge, you know, the whole of Ireland to look at instead of just concentrating on this 30 kilometre area. Exactly. I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me, but then it always did. <laughs> and Eve, are there jurisdictions where they are doing this? No, I suppose usually, so in the UK, they do something similar but everywhere else it's focused on a victim type so in the UK it's for children um you know their database is specifically for children so they're not doing it in in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. where it's on all homicide um it's the same in in America they have a couple of uh, databases but again the databases are focused on a particular victim type whereas my database was all like the focus was the the removal of the victim from the the scene of the, the murder not mm-hmm not the victims specifically themselves. I just wondered, have you, do you, when you go out for a walk, can you actually walk without mudsling, <laughs> disturbed ground? And you couldn't I see a child, child with a bucket of spade without saying, what the hell is he burying? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do look in uh, ditches <laughs> um, systematically as I'm strolling along the road. No, I do. I'm very aware. And I'm, I always wonder, will, you know, one day, will it be me who will be calling the RD to say, just out for a walk. I was just walking my dog. <laughs> I know. Well, Neve, thank you so much for coming and joining Paul and myself today. I think we've learned a lot. It's been marvellous. And I just wanted to bring to everybody's attention just the amount of work you've put into this and what the future could be using somebody like yourself. So I, I hope you're not just a lone voice and I hope that you find some friends to join you in forensic archaeology because I think you need a few companions out there and I think it would serve the, serve the state well if, we, if you did have a greater role in what happens when we're looking for deceased persons. But thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Life and Death with me, Dr. Mary Cassidy. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to one of the first people I met on my path to becoming state pathologist. Dr. Brian Farrell was the coroner in the city of Dublin for many years. And he's the person in charge of all death investigations.